First, we'd like to ask you a favor. If you enjoy our program, please take two minutes to rate us an even better poster review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get counterpoints. In fact, you could hit pause and do it right now if you were so inclined. Super Bowl 48 was billed to be the meeting of an unstoppable force, the Denver Broncos' high-octane offense led by Peyton Manning, and an immovable object, the Seattle Seahawks and their shutdown secondary, the Legion of Boom. But while that matchup headlined the marquee, there was a reason the Broncos were favored heading into the game. A mismatch on the offensive line. Working behind a group that gave up the fewest sacks in the NFL, Manning had the time and protection to shatter the records for passing yards and touchdowns in a single season. Meanwhile, his counterpart, Russell Wilson, had succeeded in spite of an O-line that was dead last in adjusted sack rate and had given up six sacks in the playoffs already. Seattle's historic defense had overcome these woes to reach the big game, but it looked like O-line play would be this Super Bowl scale tipper. And then, exactly one play into the game, the script was flipped. Denver center Manny Ramirez snapped the ball over Manning's head and into the end zone for a safety, and from that point on, the vaunted Denver offensive line wilted. Though only sacked once, Manning was routinely pressured in the pocket, he threw two interceptions, and Denver had a big old goose egg on the scoreboard for almost three quarters. And that worrisome Seattle line? They went sack-free for only the second time all season, allowing Wilson to control the game from the backfield and giving the Broncos no chance to get back in it. I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. Ben says he's too busy teaching this week to join the show. I question his priorities. In any case, in this episode, we're taking a look at those unsung heroes of the gridiron, the offensive line, and how new analytics are demonstrating just how closely tied O-line performance is to winning. CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. Though lacking in glitz and glamour, the tackle, guard, and center positions make up the backbone of every NFL offense. Without skilled players in these roles and players who can work in tandem with each other, a team's entire strategy will fall apart. In just the past few years, teams like the Rams, Chiefs, and Saints have used a punishing offensive line to drive high-powered offenses both on the ground and through the air, while the Patriots have revolutionized O-line versatility on their way to more than a handful of rings. Increasingly, these once-anonymous units are getting their due. Even so, new analytics measuring offensive line performance just might prove that we're still underrating these guys. Joining me now, ESPN's Seth Walder, to look at the fast-changing field of O-line analytics. Seth, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, happy to be here. So let's talk about the research. You're tapping into a new source of data here. Is that right? Yeah. So this is the, the, the work that we're doing here. The work that we're talking about today is based on uh, the player tracking data from the NFL, what the NFL calls its next-gen stats, which is 
there's chips in the shoulder pads of, of every player, and it's transmitting information about that player, uh, their location, speed, orientation, multiple times per second. And that just gives us a plethora of information that we can work with and try and answer some questions that uh, have been previously difficult to answer. Okay, so for our purposes, those questions have to do with offensive line play. So explain what you're learning. So one of the first things that we did when we got access to this is uh, well, we have Brian Burke on our team, which gives us, I think, a pretty a pretty nice advantage in that, uh, you know, for those that don't know, he's one of uh, the forefathers of football analytics. And so he was very excited to get his hands on this stuff. And one of the first things he wanted to do was to create something to try and measure offensive line play. Basically, if two players are standing near the line of scrimmage uh, during the play, it's a pass play, and they're facing each other, well, it's very likely that the offensive player is blocking the defensive player. And so once you have that information, we can start to break down pass blocking on an individual and team level. When a defender gets past, when his chips and the shoulder pads essentially get past the offensive player and closer to the quarterback, we know that the defensive player has beaten his blocker. What Brian created was something what we call pass block win rate, something we unveiled in the middle of last season for the first time. I'm really excited about it. I've spent more time paying attention to offensive linemen uh, over the past year than I ever have previously. And basically what it does is it says, how often, if you're an offensive lineman, does the defender that you're blocking beat you within two and a half seconds of the snap, which is roughly the average time to pass? Uh, and so we can measure that at basically an individual and team level. But the key here, that two and a half seconds, that's a really important part of this question. Because when Brian first started looking at this, if you just looked at, well, what, how often does a certain player get beaten on a play? One thing that stood out to him was that in 2017, Joe Thomas, he noticed, ranked like 55th amongst offensive tackles in terms of uh, how often he was getting beat on a play. And so he thought, well, that's either means that Joe Thomas, who's a future Hall of Famer, uh, is either worse than we think by quite a lot or we're failing to capture something. And ultimately what was really going on is that Joe Thomas was blocking for Deshaun Kaiser. Uh, and Deshaun Kaiser holds the ball for a really long time. And so eventually every offensive lineman is going to be beat. And so you have to kind of put them all on this level playing field of two and a half seconds or whatever you choose, but we chose two and a half seconds. And once you do that, Joe Thomas leapt up to be, I think he was third in pass block win rate that year. So we've got a new source of data. We've got new analytics derived from that data, which are giving us a new way to judge the effectiveness of individual offensive linemen. Can we then spin that up one level and look at a unit's effectiveness through this lens? Yeah, we can. So basically if, one player on the offensive line gets beaten within two and a half seconds, he's lost, but also we consider the team to have lost its pass blocking for that play because if one player has a free rush to the quarterback, that obviously uh, can greatly impact the QB on that pass play. So yes, we have a pass block win rate for every team in addition to every player. Excellent. So now let's take this up one more level. Can you correlate pass block win rate with, with the success or lack thereof of the team itself. Yes, and this is where things, I think, started to get really interesting. As the season went along last year, we noticed that like, just by the eye test, 
the good teams were kind of moving to the top and the bad teams were moving to the bottom. And when the regular season ended, uh, the Patriots, Rams, and Chiefs were all in the top four. That's three of the four teams that ended up being playing in the conference championship games. Eight of the top 12 teams in pass block win rate made the playoffs. And none of the bottom 12 teams in pass block win rate made the playoffs. So that was kind of interesting. And so what we did was then go back and look and see, okay, well, let's actually just like look at a correlation between pass block win rate and expected points added per play, offensive and pass block win rate and win percentage. What we found was that there was a correlation. There was definitely a correlation between some of the between some of these things. There was not that much of a difference, in fact, uh, in correlation between pass block win rate and win percentage as there was for the entirety of defensive expected points added per play and win percentage. However, that was looking at three years of data. We have pass block win rate back to 2016, 2016, 2017, 2018. If you look only at 2018, the correlation between pass block win rate and, and offensive success and winning was much higher. Now, immediately I would think, well, there's no real reason. Why should we, why should we cut it off and just look at one season's worth of data, right? But when you have three, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense to just chop your sample. I think the really sort of interesting thing here is that there was a change in the data between 2017 and 2018. Zebra, which is the company that collects the data, uh, made improvements to its to the way it uh, is displaying orientation. And so we think that it's possible, we don't know, but it's possible that pass block win rate is more accurate in 2018 than it was in 2016, 2017, which has us wondering, you know, is this even more impactful than the three-year sample would suggest? So given that the NFL is a pass-focused league, right, this does feel like a case where something we thought we knew to be true, the better the pass blocking, the more successful the team, gains even more evidence. But was there anything that surprised you about the data? Yeah. So we have the flip side of this coin, too. We have what we call pass rush win rate, which is basically the exact opposite, the inverse of the statistic. What if we look at it from the defense's perspective? Um, you can do, we can, again, do individuals and see how often did they beat their blocker within two and a half seconds. Uh, it would surprise no one that Aaron Donald crushed the rest of the league in that metric. Um, and then we can do the same thing for teams. I think what was interesting to me is that when we looked at the team level data for defenses, the correlation between defensive success and pass rush win rate was not nearly as strong as it was uh, for the inverse, for, for pass blocking and offense. And same with pass rushing and winning. And so I think what I started to think about is maybe is it that offensive line, that pass blocking is really the larger part of the equation when trying to figure out uh, the pass, pass blocking versus pass rushing interaction. And so that, to me, is pretty interesting considering I think that's not necessarily how we think about the game. Uh, you know, pass rushers, uh, as far as defensive players go, can be stars. And we very rarely talk about offensive linemen as stars. Is there any risk of confirmation bias here? So I'm thinking about the, the um, I'm thinking about how important Joe Thomas stands, right, in the way mm -hmm. you um, the way you developed the analytic, right, based on the data. So you had mm -hmm. something, Joe Thomas um, didn't kind of fit that model, so you tweaked it so he did, 
right, which, which might suggest that this analysis, you know, that environmental factors are playing a role here, right, that our, that our, that our preconceived notions might be playing a role. I, I think there is a danger of confirmation bias, though. I don't know about in that instance. I should clarify. I'm not entirely sure if Brian always, always just used that as the example, or if he first did, or if he first looked at Joe Thomas and then tweaked the model. Either way, I think the the part that has me wondering if if we're using if we're allowing a bias or some sort of uh, effect to mislead us, I think it might be. We I've said to this point carefully that these things are correlated, but I haven't quite said that pass blocking causes offensive success. And I'm wondering if it's possible, is this suffering from the same sort of thing that like, you know, running, rushing attempts suffers from in that if you are winning a game, you are more likely to therefore have better pass blocking success, uh, as opposed to if you're losing a game and the opponent knows that you need to pass, they can sort of blitz you without worry that you're going to run. Does that throw a wrench in the numbers? Of course, the flip side of that would also be true that you would expect that the pass rushing then would correlate stronger with winning teams because uh, of what I just said. And we don't see that as much. And so I do think that there are questions here, no doubt about it. Are there are there things that are not necessarily clear yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're still relatively early in the research process. The data would suggest, though, in your analysis of the data, that the correlation is pretty strong. So yeah. how actionable um, are these findings for teams? You know, I'm thinking about draft. I'm thinking about free agency. I think quite actionable. But you know what? I don't. Th- I think this is also one of the interesting questions that sort of comes out of this. Like, um, you guys had Cade Massey on your podcast a few months ago, right? And I listened to his, his thesis was you can't judge individual players right by uh, in the NFL because they're all part of this larger ecosystem of an offense or defense. Right. Uh, and I think that that's definitely a question here. Can we look at an offensive line uh, and a single offensive lineman and say that he is more important than a single defensive lineman? I'm not sure that we have enough information yet to say that because I think our working theory might be that what you really want to avoid on the offensive line is one weak link. That's a big problem. And so uh, we see some examples of that, like the Dolphins, they don't, they didn't have one week link. They had three weak links, but they had two pretty good tackles in Laramie Tunsil and Jawan James. But because the interior of their offensive line was so weak, they were an awfully poor pass block win rate team. Uh, whereas the flip side, the Patriots had Shaq Mason, but no one else was really particularly elite on their offensive line. And yet they were one of the best, if not the best, pass blocking offensive lines in the league. So I think the question is, here's what I, my current theory, and this is what I would do if I were a GM right now, which is basically uh, I would invest in the offensive line quite a bit, but I would focus that investment on mid-tier assets and depth. So not necessarily trying to pay for the best offensive linemen, but pay for many pretty good offensive linemen. And I would certainly think that it is very critical. I would say, in my opinion now, this is just how I feel. In my, I think it's becoming more clear to me that offensive line may be the second most important position group after quarterback. And so I would want to make sure I have a good offensive line. But whether that comes through elite players or just sort of average to good players is still up for debate. 
Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because when, when, when so many teams continue to pursue expensive free agents, there's a cost to that, right? That they're, they're going to have to underpay some people on the team. And if that's on the offensive line, then that would run totally counter to what you're seeing. Yeah, exactly. So like, and, and you may not, and it's not always clear that, or you may not always have the option, right? When it comes to free agency, you know, maybe only be a few guys out there that are good enough. And so you do have to pay them a lot. So I do think that overall it is worth the investment uh, to pay your offensive linemen or, or to invest in your offensive linemen. I just don't know whether the elite players can contribute an outs- in an outsized way compared to an average player. I could be wrong about that. I mean, it certainly could be that if you have an elite tackle, that the guard next to him uh, can be his level of play could be brought up because you don't have to help that tackle. I think that's worth investigating. We just haven't gotten there yet. So on that note, what's next in the research? Well, I've done a little more looking recently in just the past few weeks at uh, trying to look at the stability of these two things. Um, Pass block win rate, I wanted to look at, well, what's the correlation between, between, between team pass block win rate in the first half and team pass block win rate in the second half or team pass block win rate in the first half and offensive success in the second half. Uh, I mentioned this disparity between 2016, 2017, and 2018 previously. That was one area where there was a big disparity. There was uh, a lot of correlation this year between first half pass blocking and second half offensive success, but that was not true in 2016 and 2017. Um, Pass rush win rate uh, on a week-to-week level wasn't quite as stable uh, when Brian looked at sort of like the – just a week to week correlation. But then when you, we did a, I did a first half, second half look at pass rush win rate. And it was about as stable in that, in that measure as pass blocking. So there is something there. It just doesn't have the same impact that pass blocking does. I think the, the real question, the real thing that we, we want to get to is, well, really turning this into what if we incorporate this into a predictive model? Like how much can this add to what we talk about with, you know, at ESPN, we do a lot of predicting of who's going to be good what if we added this into an equation to try and figure out who will be good going forward i mean that's really interesting and you would assume that you know the technology as it gets better and better and the data that emerges from it gets better and better that the ability to predict based on that is going to increase but it also raises a question of how relevant some of these kind of longer historical analyses are becoming when you know that the present day, whatever you're getting right now, is of superior quality than what you got last year or two years before that. Yes, I think that's an interesting part. I mean, that's, I think that, that sort of this sort of concept of, well, like the data is different in 2018 and how are you supposed to draw, draw conclusions uh, from this single year? How do you wait? wait one year over the over the next because of improvements in the data is it's an interesting question and the the cool thing here is that especially in the nfl where we got access to the data um, at basically the same time that teams did is that if teams are building their own models along the lines of this they're also wrangling with that exact same question great seth walder thank you very much thank you guys This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. And if you have an idea for a topic we should cover or a guest we should invite, please drop us a line at counterpoints at mit.edu. Counterpoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Menashe. And our maven of marketing is Desiree Barry. <laughs>